Okay, we're going to continue or complete our main Bible reading. So picking up from uh, Isaiah chapter 38, and that's on page 598 of the Church Bibles. says this, In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die, and you shall not recover. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord and said, Please, O Lord, remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart, and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. Go and tell, go and say to Hezekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer, I have seen your tears. Behold, I will add fifteen years to your life. I will deliver you in this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria, and will defend this city. This shall be the sign to you from the Lord, that the Lord will do this thing that he has promised. Behold, I will make the shadow cast by the declining sun of the dial of Ahaz turn back ten steps. So the sun turned back on the dial the ten steps by which it had declined. A writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, after he had been sick and had recovered from his sickness. I said in the middle of my days I must depart. I am consigned to the gates of Sheol for the rest of my years. I said, I shall not see the Lord, the Lord in the land of the living. I shall look on man no more among the inhabitants of the world. My dwelling is plucked up and removed from me like a shepherd's tent. Like a weaver, I have rolled up my life. He cuts me off from the loom. From day to night, you bring me to my end. I calm myself until morning like a lion, he breaks all my bones. From day to night, you bring me to an end. Like a swallow or a crane I chirp, I moan like a dove, my eyes are weary with looking upwards. O Lord, I am oppressed, be my pledge of safety. What shall I say? For he has spoken to me and he himself has done it. I walk slowly all my years because of the bitterness of my soul. O Lord, by these things men live, and in all these is the life of my spirit. O restore me to health and make me live. Behold, it was for my welfare that I had great bitterness, but in love you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. For Sheol does not thank you, death does not praise you. Those who go down to the pit do not hope for your faithfulness. The living, the living, he thanks you, as I do this day. The Father has made known to the children your faithfulness. The Lord will save me and will play my music on stringed instruments all the days of our lives at the house of the Lord. Now Isaiah had said, Let them take a cake of figs and apply it to the boil, that he may recover. Hezekiah also had said, What is the sign that I shall go up to the house of the Lord? At that time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and the present to Hezekiah, for he heard that he had been sick and had recovered. And Hezekiah welcomed them gladly, 
and he showed them his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, the whole armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There is nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say? And from where did they come to you? Hezekiah said, They have come to me from a far country, from Babylon. He said, What have they seen in your house? Hezekiah answered, They have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house, and that which your fathers have stored up to this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then said Hezekiah to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. But he thought, There will be peace and security in my days. Well, do keep that text open, which we'll be looking at together. Uh, Just to say, as we start, there's an outline of where we're going in your service sheets, so do make use of that. And there will be opportunities at the end if you have any questions or comments about the things that we'll look at together. But before we go any further, let's pray and ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the living God, uh, that you are good, truthful and sovereign. And we pray now, as your people, in response to your word, that we would vindicate who you are, in that we listen, trust and obey your word. For Christ's sake, Amen. Amen. There is, a, there is a diversity of religions in the world. So there's Christianity, Judaism, Islam. There's Hinduism, Buddhism, Sikhism, and many others. What can we conclude from such diversity? One conclusion is that we cannot be sure which religion is the true one. For the diversity of opinions cast doubt on any one opinion. That is to say that so much divergency exists regarding religion that we're not able to assent to any one religion. Rather, we suspend judgment. Now, one of the problems of this line of thought is that we will never assent to anything if there is a diversity of opinions about it. From a Christian perspective, this whole line of thinking kills faith. Augustine wrote, if assent is taken away, so is faith. For without assent, nothing can be believed. If we assent to nothing, Christian faith is impossible. But what then are we to conclude about the diversity of religions? (coughs) At this point, we might like to go somewhere like I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Quoting Jesus, he says that only he is the way to the Father. All the other religions, Islam, Judaism, Hinduism, Buddhism, Sikhism, none of these will bring you to the Father. 
There's no other way but me, says Jesus. Though it is interesting to note that Jesus doesn't say, I am the way to God, but I am the way to the Father. Now this question regarding the diversity of religions and the conclusions to be drawn was very much alive before the coming of Jesus. Now, of course, the diversity of religions existed well before he came. And conclusions regarding that diversity were also being formed. In our passage this morning, this is very much the case. And as we take a look at it together, it will help us to consider what conclusions can be drawn from religious diversity or should be drawn before we even get to Jesus. Now we're now at the point in Isaiah, in Israel's history, where they are now up to their necks with the threat of Assyria. A nation that Israel's previous king had made an alliance with has now turned on them. But what will Israel's new king, Hezekiah, do? Will he follow the path of his father and make another alliance? Chapter 36 begins with the Assyrian king, Sennacherib, sending the Rabshakeh, a high-ranking military officer, to Hezekiah with a great army. And the purpose is to persuade Judah to concede defeat and be ruled by them. Now the Rabshakeh, he's not stupid, he's aware of Hezekiah's options. Hezekiah could pursue an alliance with Egypt. But in the Rabshakeh's estimation, verse 6, Egypt is weak. Hezekiah could attempt to fight back. But, verse 8, he knows that their army is no match for the Assyrians. The only other possibility is that Hezekiah trusts the Lord for deliverance. I take it that the Rabshakeh sees that this is Hezekiah's most likely option. And it's the one then that he spends most of his time on. So he spends little time on Egypt and uh, Judah's own defences, but concentrates on the possibility of Hezekiah trusting the Lord. The Rabshakeh thinks that Hezekiah's trust in the Lord is futile. Look at what he says to the people of Judah in chapter 36, verse 15. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, the Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Now the reason why he thinks that, you need to look down to verses 18 to 20. It goes on, verse 18. Beware, lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying, the Lord will deliver us. Have any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of 
Sepharvaim, how they delivered Samaria out of my hand. Who among all the gods of these lands has delivered their lands out of my hand, that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? You see, in Rabshakeh's thinking, the Lord is simply one more god. Assyria has already conquered many other gods and their corresponding nations. So, what is one more? And it's an interesting conclusion that he's drawn about the religious diversity. He sees all the different gods on a level with each other, each one connected with a corresponding nation. And above them all lies Assyria. In other words, his configuration of the different religions of the world is that Assyria is over all of them. And his argument then to Hezekiah and the people of Judah is that, it, is that um, it's folly to trust in their God, the Lord, and resist Assyria. Much better to concede defeat and live as a vassal nation of Assyria. Now, unlike his father, Ahaz, who refused Isaiah's counsel, Hezekiah sends word to Isaiah to entreat him to pray. Chapter 37, verse 4. And following assurances from Isaiah that Assyria will not be successful in their conquest of Judah, Assyria then puts pressure on Hezekiah to concede through a letter. And it's this then that leads to Hezekiah praying. I don't know what you thought, but his prayer is really quite remarkable. Let's read it again, chapter 37, verse 14. Hezekiah received a letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear all the words of Zanacharib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the king of Assyria has laid waste all the nations in the lands, and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. The key verse here is verse 16. Let me read that again. Verse 16. O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. It's here that we're given the reason why, in Hezekiah's opinion, that the Lord is not on a level with the other gods and their nations. It is because the Lord made heaven and earth. It's very simple, but very profound. It's because the Lord is the creator of everything that he rules over everything. 
God is introduced to us as the creator in Genesis chapter 1. And the Bible, it never moves on from that description of him. It's the fundamental descriptor of who God is, the one who made heaven and earth. The implication of that that Hezekiah draws out is that he is therefore the ruler over everything in his creation, including all the kingdoms of the earth. And that, of course, is a very different configuration to that of Assyria. Now, do notice that within Hezekiah's prayer, there is a prayer for the deliverance of Judah from Assyria. But just take a look at the place that such deliverance occupies. Because for Hezekiah, Judah's deliverance is not the end goal. For him, it's not that God is simply the means for their deliverance. It's not that their well-being is the end and that God is only the means to that end. Because here Hezekiah demonstrates the opposite. God is the end and their deliverance is the means. As far as Hezekiah is concerned, his chief motive for Judah being delivered is that the world may know that God alone is God. Now the rest of uh, Isaiah chapter 37 tells us of the Lord's answer to Hezekiah's prayer. And as well as providing further reassurance that Assyria will not be successful in conquering Judah, it's of note the category in which the Lord talks about Assyria and her king, Sennacherib. Just take another look at chapter 37, verse 26. Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old what now I bring to pass, that you should make fortified cities crash into heaps of ruins. The very one whose Sennacherib is accused of impotence before the Assyrian might is in fact the one who is decreed and directed the Assyrian conquest. <coughs> Sennacherib is not the one who threatens to drive God from his throne. Rather, he is God's servant. And the long string of victories which he cited as evidence of his superiority over any god are in fact all part of God's plan. But now the tool has become brazen against the hand that swings it and this attitude the Lord will not tolerate. Assyria will now become part of the biblical data that contributes to that proverb. Pride comes before a fall. In many ways, it could be tempting to think that this is the end of the story. Uh, a contrast between Ahaz, who made an alliance with the nations and brought disaster, and Hezekiah, 
who trusted the Lord and brought deliverance. You know, with the threat of Assyria now past, Judah lives to fight another day. But there are some textual clues to suggest that the story of Hezekiah is part of something bigger. His mortality in chapter 38. Hezekiah's sickness reminds the reader that he is mortal. And the next king, well, he could be another Ahaz, or worse. And although at this, at this point, I think he didn't even have any offspring. Now, whilst granted extra years to his life, it provides the opportunity for him to sin in chapter 39. Hezekiah has the opportunity to give glory to God in the presence of Babylon. But instead, he falls prey to the temptation to parade his own glory. And it's it's a sad end for an otherwise good king. This means, of course, that he is not the promised child of Isaiah chapter 9. Now, I think we need help to think this way because we know it's not him, because the child will be Jesus. But enjoying the ride helps us to learn about the category that he will fulfil. Judah will need a king who not only will not make alliances with the nations of the world, but also he needs to be one who will give glory to God without compromise. Hezekiah's mortality and seduction locate the role he places in a much bigger narrative, the narrative of God's redemptive history. Well, we began by considering the diversity of religions in the world and what conclusions can be drawn. Assyria, well, they saw all the different religions as on the same level. And if they can conquer some, then there's no reason to think they can't conquer others. Hezekiah, he saw things differently. He made a crucial observation that put the Lord in a category of his own. And that was that the Lord made heaven and earth. The reason that the Lord rules over everything is because he made everything. And this is why it's so important to talk about creation, because it establishes God's rule or claim over all creation. You see, why do we owe God glory and honour and submission? It's not simply because God is bigger than us, or he's bigger than all the other gods. It's not simply because he's so great and holy and good. We owe God glory and honour and submission because he made us. And so before we get to Jesus and the redemption that he brings, the Bible has already established what we should conclude about religious diversity. Not least that the God of the Bible does not sit alongside the gods of the other world religions. He is in a different category altogether. 
is the one who made heaven and earth. And whilst this is contested by the kingdoms of the world, his plan of redemption will be the means that all the kingdoms of the earth will know that he alone is the Lord. Jesus is the king who refuses to make an alliance with the world. He seeks only the glory of his father. And through his death, resurrection and ascension, brings about the redemption of people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And he restores, not simply, their creaturely relationship to their creator, but designates them, designates us, as sons with the full rights of an heir. Let me pray and then I'll open up to any questions or comments that you might have. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in a world full of religious diversity, uh, the conclusion that we ought to come to uh, has been long decided when we consider that you alone are the one who made heaven and earth. And we thank you for the example of Hezekiah, who uh, would trust in you. And we thank you that although he failed, that he um, uh, is a shadow of the one who would come after him, the Lord Jesus Christ, who with uncompromising uh, trust in you, and giving glory to you would bring about the redemption, the means by which we can be restored to you, our creator. And we pray that these things would strengthen our faith in you and also help us to explain to other people um, why you, Lord, alone are God. Amen. Okay, so... Anybody want to ask a question, make a comment? It could be something in the text that we've not looked at or something that I've said. Victor. Yeah, very helpful question. So just for the recording, Victor said, many other religions in the world will claim that their God is also the one who made the heaven and the earth. So the how, how, do we, how do we think about that? So I think here, a very helpful uh, concept is the biblical concept of idolatry. And idolatry is basically wrong thinking about God. And I think it's... Um, for some of us, we've, we've come to understand idolatry is more like making, um, making idols, making physical representations of these gods, which some religions do do. But if that's all we think of it is, the concept isn't um, is, uh, useful as actually it is. And it's the idea that even before we make an image um, of, of wood and stone, as, as, as um, some people do, 
we've already imagined what God is like in our minds. So actually, whether we turn that into a physical representation or not, it doesn't really matter, because we've already done the, I like to think of God as. And so from the biblical perspective, you've got the, the true God, and then you've got idols. It's the gods that people make up. Interestingly, this is why, you know, Isaiah, he talks about the living God. And he doesn't just um, stick living in front of God, because basically, if you put some more adjectives before the word God, he sounds, you know, more amazing. He's a living God, because, of course, the gods that we make up aren't real. Just, we just make them up. So the living God's quite crucial. It's not just a how can we kind of dress him up. It's actually he's, he, he's the true living God as opposed to the idols, which are not real. Okay. So that's how we're thinking. Now, the question then is, is when you make up a God, how do you do that? What, what's he going to look like? And it goes back to this whole idea of the only thing we can do is take what God has given us and twist it. Um, because we live in a world that's created by him, so there's nothing else outside the world that he's made. So all we can do is take what he has given us and then we can corrupt it or twist it. But there isn't, there's nothing outside that we can access because he created everything. And so it's not a surprise at all that the gods we make up bear some resemblance, some resemblance to the living God. Okay? Some more than others. You see some descriptions of God, and they're so grotesque, they bear almost no resemblance to the living God. Whereas others, there will be, um, they will have some resemblance to God, but they are still not him, because there is only one living God. So I think that's probably, and I think it's quite an, um, um, I found that quite a um, straightforward concept to discuss with people. You know, you've probably heard Tom and I talk about, just from a human point of view, that um, in relationships uh, we need the person to reveal themselves. And if we just make up, you know, um, what we think about somebody, that somebody isn't real. It's just, it's just a figment of our imagination. And I think that's, that's actually it's not a difficult thing to understand, that we are we readily do that with God, and that's the thing I think we can expose. So in short, um, other religions do claim their gods made heaven and earth, but they, from a biblical worldview, uh, what they're doing is that they are making up their own gods but they are using some of the material or the the truth about the, the true god for their own god because there's nothing else that they can do does that help yeah anybody else Yes, ma'am. Uh, what's the 
So our question for the recording, what's the significance of 30 to 32 about what they grow and eat? Uh, let's just read that again, 37, 30. And this should be the sign for you. This year you shall eat what grows of itself. In the second year, what springs from that? Then in the third year, sow and reap and plant vineyards and eat their fruit. And the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downwards and bear fruit upwards. For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, and out of Mount Zion the band of survivors, the zeal of a Lord of hosts, will do this. So I think this is the idea that, um, obviously, if Assyria was successful in flattening uh, Jerusalem, nothing would grow. And actually, Assyria, they're already up to their necks um, uh, in the Assyrian invasion. So they're already, you know, battered and bruised. And so this comes, this promise and sign comes off the back of, of uh, the Lord's answer to Hezekiah's prayer that Assyria will not be successful in their conquest against Judah. They themselves will be defeated and therefore the land will be restored to them um, and that actually it will take a few years in order for them to then be able to you know, grow their vineyards and, and, and harvest, their, harvest their fruit. So yeah, I think it's a promise to restore the land, which kind of comes as a, you know, um, again, in terms of what, um, uh, what's his name? The uh, Rab Shaka said to the people back in verse, uh, chapter 36, he says, oh, if you make peace with me, I will give you a land, I will give you your own space. So I guess here, again, you've got this whole um, twisting that Rabshakeh says that he can provide an inheritance for Judah, but actually um, Assyria will fall and its God will provide the inheritance. And this, of course, goes back to the, you know, you've got to ask the question behind that, saying, well, who is the Lord that he can give and take? And that obviously takes you back that he is the creator and it's his to give and it's his to take. And for more? Yes, Josh. Yeah, um, off the back of Victor's question, mm-hmm. I'm just thinking of like, what sort of practical implications for like actually trying to see how I can read the back perspective of kind of idolatry. Well, 
Okay, thanks. So, a question around of Bakker Victor's question: How do you a, help to how you talk about this with somebody who it may be a difficult, you know, it could be quite a heated topic. Um, obviously, you could read the Bible with them, do the God next up, no. But so, um, I remember one conversation I had just um, over the summer, and I think. Because I think if you start talking about other religions, obviously that you know you can push buttons and that can be um, you can get yourself in trouble. Although it's only a bad thing to do, but we want to be you know wise about how we speak. But I think this whole concept of um, allowing God to speak, this whole con- this whole idea of revelation. I think is a very, very helpful one for people. But I think a lot of people just haven't heard it put this way in terms of if we are to know what the living God is like, we need to allow him to speak. Um, and if we, um, if we say the whole, I like to think of God as, we're not allowing God to speak. So in other words, we think we can engage in the the methodology of what we are, of what we're doing. Now that doesn't answer those broader questions of well, how do we like when I had this discussion, the question then was, well, where do we hear the living God speak? But before you get there, I think you can do quite a lot of groundwork by establishing our method has to be to allow God to speak rather than us to decide for ourselves how we want to think about him because that is just not how relationships how relationships works and that's why you know victor you, you can use the example of a human example just to show the the folly of that that relationships never never start that way so i think i might i, I might start with that because that i think has got real power because if someone's willing to say actually I can see that distinction and actually we need to allow God to speak then you can then start to tackle the question whereas well where do we hear the living God speak and then that's where you know, as a Christian we can say well you know or you can say I'm, I'm, I'm persuaded that actually it's the God of the Bible he's the living Bible you know come and Come and take a look, see for yourself, and you can make you can make your own mind up. You've also got things like reflection that kind of uh, show the credibility of why actually we've got good reasons. God's given us good reasons that actually the God who is Trinity is the living God, because that explains the world in which we live in, and which the other religions don't. But at the end of the day, the way that people hear the, the words of a living God is by hearing Him and the Spirit bringing those words to, to, um, of truth to them and that they're ultimately they're reborn. So that's, that's where, we want to, where we want to go. Um, I mean, the one other thing I would say, and I just find this interesting, is that I do think the diversity of religions is really confusing to people. It's just like, how do you, you, know, how do you know? And there's some people that go like, when I was thinking about becoming a Christian, 
several people said to me, oh, you're going to investigate all the different religions to work out which is the true one. And it's just like, well, you know, you can't do that. It's just there's too many and all the rest of it. And so I also do think that we have quite a powerful apologetic to explain where the diversity of religions comes from and how to put that together. Because otherwise it just feels like there's this, 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 this. Why do you think you're any more right than this? And so I think we need to be able to explain the other religions, not just say that they're, they're wrong, we're right, but to say, actually, um, since Genesis and the fall, we, we prefer to think for ourselves. We, we decide for ourselves how we want to think about God to suit us, and that has given birth to the other religions. So I think, yeah, that's, I mean, yeah, I guess you just think about how to sort of do that. But I think at some point, because if you can do that, then suddenly that strengthens faith in the living God because the other gods are put in their place as distortions of the true God. Do you see what I mean? Otherwise, if you don't tackle them, they're still, they're still there and you know, can be enticing or just confusing. Is that helpful? Cool. Great. Okay, we'll leave it there. But um, we can... Um, continue to talk about these things, we're going to sing a prayer. Um, she's been thinking how the purpose of God's deliverance is that um, the whole world would know that he alone is God. And our song now, Restore O Lord, is a prayer to that end. <laughs>